Let's consider 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We've been considering this letter, this epistle that John has written to the church, and we've been, we've been reminded week after week the, the marks or the evidences that we are children of God, that we truly belong to God, or as this text puts it, that we're from God rather than those who are not from God. And in this sermon this morning, in these six brief verses, John is telling us, that we can persist in God's assurance through the act of discernment. That we need to be a, not just a believing people, not just a God-fearing people, but a discerning people. Having said that, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us to understand what it is you've said to us in uh, these few verses. Lord, help by your Spirit's presence. Help us to know that not only that we are children of God, but how it is that we can help others to know that they are children of God. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I, I don't know if any of you played baseball, but I played baseball till about 14 years of age. And the reason that I stopped playing baseball is because I never could identify or hit a curveball. It's difficult to recognize a curveball, and even, even after you learn to recognize a curveball, it's still difficult to hit it because what is a curveball doing? It's constantly moving away from the trajectory or the line on which it starts. And the trajectory or the line that, the, that we start on and we're supposed to stay on like a well-thrown fastball is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The confession that we find in verse 2. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is a confession that is essential to the Christian faith. But there are deceivers out there. I will call them doctrinally deviant deceivers out there who want to start with the word Jesus or start with the concept of Jesus or Christ and then rapidly they want to move away from him. And, and what Jesus wants us to know in these verses is how to recognize theological error. These theological curveballs, if you will, so that we can then knock them out of the park. Because we don't want doctrinal error in the camp, if you will. These, these doctrinally deviant deceivers have left the church, and there are some in the church who are concerned about that. What does that mean about me? And so John shows us very quickly in these six verses that to remain within God's assurance that he has for us in a world surrounded by and permeated with theological erroneous options, what must we do as the children of God to remain assured that we've got the real thing rather than someone else? First, we must not believe every spirit. Second, we must evaluate every spirit based upon its confession. And third, we must not be discouraged when some reject us. First, to remain in God's assurance, we must not believe every spirit. We see this in verse 1. He tells us, beloved. He calls his church again, those who are beloved. Which is fascinating to me, because John is going to talk very heavily about doctrine. And the reason he's talking about doctrine is what? It is his great love for the church. This has been a reminder to me this week that one of the primary ways that a pastor loves his flock is by his insistence on the integrity of the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? That one of the, one of the primary ways that a pastor can love his flock is 
to help you be on the defense against all the people who want to come in and sell you a different gospel and rob you of the joy that we have of belonging to Christ alone. And so my pledge to you as your pastor from now until I draw my last breath or until I die or until you kick me out is this. I will insist on the integrity of the gospel. We are going to believe in a particular Jesus, not just any Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible. Christ the Messiah come in the flesh. So as Christians, as those who are believers, not only must we keep on believing in Jesus, but consistent belief in Jesus also implies that we keep on not believing everything else. Do you see what he says in verse 1? He commands you, beloved, that you not believe everything. Spirit. Why? Because many false prophets or pseudo-prophets have gone out into the world. The word have gone out there means they've gone out and they're not coming back. They've gone out under a doctrine, a doctrine of deception that has uh, taken hold of their heart and the rest of their lives will persist in selling you a, a lie, a bill of goods. These, these folks are, some of them are riding on bikes Some of them are knocking on doors, bringing lies, masquerading as truth. And while we marvel at the sincerity of their effort in proclaiming a lie, we must remember that it is a lie which is powerless to save. And we must remember that they too are motivated by a power. Verse 3, they are motivated by the power. They are under the sway of Antichrist. And I think sometimes when I wake up on Saturday morning and there's a Jehovah's Witness standing at my door, I'm like, what are you thinking about? I'm just hanging out and enjoying time with my family. Why are you here? And we've got to remember that Satan would like nothing more than to creep into your home and to rob you of the joy of belonging to God and knowing the gospel. They are motivated by a power. And so John commands us not to believe every spirit. The spirit is that which is motivating or animating that which a man or a woman is speaking to you. Here's the bottom line. There's some people, no matter what they say to you, we need to not believe what it is they are saying. And we struggle with this as a church, don't we? Don't you struggle not believing someone? I do. And, and I've, I've been wrestling this week with why is it so hard for me to not believe? Here's why. Because God's been so gracious and long-suffering and patient with me. And, and one of the challenges we have in church life is because we have received the grace of God, we have received the long-suffering of God because He's put up with us for so long. Sometimes we think that that means, well, they didn't quite get the gospel right So maybe we'll just accept that anyway. But that would be a misunderstanding of what God's grace is. God's grace cannot come to us unless we get it right about the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you miss it on the gospel, there's no grace available for any of us. And so we've got to get the precision of the gospel right. And precision, by the way, is a beautiful thing. Stacey and I, one day, maybe one month, maybe three years from now, we're going to move into our home. And you keep asking me, when are you going to move in? And every time I want to say, I'm moving in this weekend. But guess what? There's been like 15 details that have been off track or wrong or the floor's out of square or there's a gap in my flooring or they missed a spot. And here's the reality. I'm not moving into that house until at least for a week I don't have to think about any detail. Because precision, accuracy is a beautiful, compelling thing. 
And we must not neglect the precision and the accuracy of the gospel. A precision so precise that it would lead Jesus to say, narrow is the way that leads to life. The Christian faith is a faith wherein sinners find hope and acceptance. But we only find hope and acceptance if we find it on God's terms. Which means we must not believe every spirit. But secondly... It's the correlation of not believing. The way we don't believe is we are commanded to test the spirits continually. Keep on testing. Did you know as long as you're alive and have breath and you're walking in the faith, somebody's going to walk through your door. Somebody's going to walk into your church. Somebody's going to walk into your cube. And they're going to try to sell you a doctrinally deficient bill of goods. And you've got to be ready to give the right test. And you've got to give the right test to determine whether they are speaking from the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of truth, verse 6, or the Spirit of error, which is every other spirit which would speak. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is the one of whom Jesus says in John 15, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, look what the Spirit does. He will testify about who? About me, meaning Jesus. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Colin Cruz says this, The Spirit's role is that of witness to the truth about Jesus. Have you ever met those individuals who say they got the Spirit and all they can talk about is the Holy Spirit? All they can talk about is the gifts of the Spirit? All they can talk about is the... Things going on that are of the Spirit, and yet the Holy Spirit is given to us to give testimony to the glory of Christ. If you really have the Holy Spirit of God, then you can't get over declaring the beautiful, wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. And so a good teacher asks the right question when he designs a test. I was a history and political science major Forgive me, uh, but it's true. And, and in some of those college classes that I had, they would be, uh, uh, there would be a midterm and a final. And on the midterm, there'd be one question, and on the final, there'd be one question. That's it. You spend eight, seven and a half weeks studying, and you walk in, and you sit down, and there's one question on the piece of paper. And the reason there's one question is because if you've really been paying attention, if you've really understood and processed what you've been learning, you should be able to answer this question and knock it out of the park. And if you wrestle with this one question, well, guess what? You really haven't gotten any of the concepts that the teacher's been trying to get. And this is what John does here. He gives us one question. And the answer to the question, if you get it right, you are those who are from God, verse 2. If you get it wrong, the answer to the question, then you are those who are not. From God. It's like a multiple choice exam with two answers A and B, light and dark, life and death. I don't know about you, but the option that I never could stand on a multiple choice exam was all of the above. Because I'd sit there and then look at that and I'd be like, well, I really thought it was A, but there's, there's something about B that's really attractive. And then you got those ones that's like A, B, C, D, E, and then D is A. It's A and B, but not C. And then E is all the above. And your mind is just circling and swarming. Aren't you glad that Jesus makes it pretty simple? He gives us one question with two possible answers. Either Jesus 
Christ has come in the flesh, and that is my only hope, that is my confession, or I need something other than Jesus Christ come in the flesh. I can do without Jesus Christ come in the flesh, or I can exceed the righteousness that Christ brought me by coming in the flesh. And notice, notice this question does three things. First, the question is comprehensive. Jesus doesn't give us a bunch of questions for a bunch of different spirits. He says, no matter what the world throws at you, ask them this one question. Do they confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? The question is Christological. What someone believes about Jesus, the Messiah, is how we recognize whether or not they've been adopted by God and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And the question is confessional. Now, confession here, according to Danny Aiken, denotes not mere verbal acknowledgement, but an open and forthright declaration of the message as one's own position. Let me say that again. It denotes not mere verbal acknowledgement. To confess Christ the Messiah is to align our lives with what we confess. It's not mere words on a screen that we sing. It's not mere words on a page passed down to us through church history. It is a conviction that ushers forth from our very soul and it informs every aspect of our lives, our work, our marriages, our parenting, that the whole goal that we're aiming for is Jesus Christ the Messiah has come in the flesh and he is the only hope that I have for life and godliness. That my entire life orbits around this confession, Jesus Christ has come for me. Now the problem we face with false prophets is this one. False prophets, by, by definition, are incapable of being intellectually honest with you. They're incapable of being intellectually honest with you because they've become convinced that the untruth is the truth. They redefine their terms. They use the language of faith to deceive the faithful. So let's consider the confession for a moment. Jesus refers to the baby born in Bethlehem of a virgin Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit. Christ, by the way, is not Jesus' last name. Did y'all know that? You know, me and JC, we're good. It's like, like you're talking about me and DP, Pastor DP. Well, JC doesn't mean Jesus and his last name or his surname is Christ. No, no, no. Christ means Messiah. He is the Christos. He is the promised one. He is the appointed and anointed one of the Father who is sent by God, who is pre-existent. He didn't just arrive in the flesh and then suddenly exist. He, there's never a time when Jesus Christ was not, but there was a time when he was not in the flesh. And he purposed to come in the flesh and to wrap himself in humanity so that he could deliver humanity from the curse of sin and death. And when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are saying he is the fulfillment of all the promises of God made to us in the Old Testament. North Roanoke, we are not waiting for the last days. We are living in the last days because the Messiah has come. We are not working to earn our salvation because Messiah came and he brought down God's salvation. Indeed, salvation is his name. We're not waiting like Jason Reedy to go on God's mission because we have been saved. Every single one of us, if we're a child of God, we've already been saved into Messiah's mission. And he has come once and for all in the flesh. Jesus didn't come, take on flesh, go to the grave, and leave a physical body in the grave and just get raised up as a spirit. Which, by the way, is what some of the doctrinal deceivers wanted to say. 
Well, Jesus was just raised as a spirit. He's changed me on the inside, uh, in my soul, but I can live in the body however I want to. In other words, Jesus Christ came, he put on some humanity for a little while, but now there's this God-like spirit up there somewhere. We don't really need the physical resurrection. And we need to be careful because sometimes we talk like this. Sometimes we say, well, he's, I, I, I'm, I, I got some happy feelings on the inside and everything's okay. But Christianity is more than that. Christianity is, it begins with Christ come in the flesh. The middle of Christianity is Christ come in the flesh. And the end is we will behold our Savior in the flesh face to face. He didn't come just to make you feel warm fuzzies on the inside. He came to give you life and life everlasting in a glorified body, which will be well equipped to serve and to worship and to adore your Savior forevermore. Anything less than that confession is the spirit of error. So, when we administer this test, what we are asking is this spirit behind the person that's talking to me, how can I know whether they actually are professing the Christ that I believe in? So here's some questions. Are, are they more interested in the intricacies of the spiritual gifts than in the Savior the gifts are intended for us to glorify and serve? Are they more interested in a second blessing than in the blessing that comes in Christ alone? Is Jesus the beginning point of their conversation but never the end? They start with Jesus and they just want to take you somewhere else. You see, there's no salvation apart from the incarnation of Christ because, as Timothy tells us, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Walls puts it this way, does the teacher embrace Jesus' full humanity and deity? If not, reject his teaching. Aiken says this, no matter how convincing or eloquent the deceivers may be, they still must be judged by their confession to Christ. The beginning, the middle, and the end of our faith is Jesus, this Messiah. It is this Jesus we confess. He is the author and the sustainer and the finisher of our faith who one day we will see literally face to face. And how do we know the ones who have the spirit of truth? It's the ones who delight to say, if Christ is not real, I have no hope because I've placed all my hope. I am completely and utterly dependent, not just for the breath that I draw, but for any righteousness that I have. It is all up to what Jesus, the Messiah come in the flesh, has done for me. So if we're going to persist in this assurance that God gives, there's some things we must not believe. There's a test we must administer. And lastly, we must not be discouraged when some reject us. Are y'all people pleasers out there? Y'all got any people pleasers? I'm a people pleaser. I can't stand it when someone doesn't like me. And then I'm like, well, I don't like myself some days. So that's understandable. <clears throat> Do you remember back in the days of elementary school, public elementary school, when at the end of the week you got the folder with all your papers sent home, and then sometimes it would be a Tuesday, a Wednesday, or a Thursday, and a piece, special piece of paper would go home with you announcing this, there's been a lice outbreak in the second grade classroom. You remember those? The bright orange pieces of paper, warning, warning. Well, I don't know what happened in your household, and some of you are doing this already. Uh, 
I don't know... I don't know what happened in your household, but here's what my mom did. She got that paper and she stared at it for about five minutes. And, and now that I'm older, I know what was going through her mind. Did we start it? Is it us? Do, do my kid? Hey, son, get over here right now. Flashlight, comb looking for those little nits down in there. And, and this is what is happening to the church that John is writing to. The problem isn't with them. It's with the people who've left the faith and they've abandoned Jesus, the Messiah, come in the flesh. And John wants to say to them, don't freak out. Don't whip out your theological flashlight and comb. Just rest in the promise of God that you belong to him. Look what he says in verses 4, 5, and 6. He uses... Uh, in the Greek, uh, uh, there's a way to emphasize your subject. The verbs in the Greek language, could, they include the subject. But if you really want to emphasize something, you'll mention the noun, which is the subject, and then the verb, which also has the subject. I know I'm not making much sense here, but he's saying, you, verse 4, are of God. He didn't have to put the you in there. But he's saying, you are of God. And then in verse 6, we are of God. And then verse 5, sandwiched between these two emphatic declarations is this statement. They are not of God. In a world of theological error, it's good to know whose side you're on. And it's even better to know, as John says, that those who belong to God are overcomers. They've already overcome those who would bring doctrinal error. We are on the winning side. Those who confess faith in Christ and Christ alone as their hope of righteousness and the favor of God are on the winning side. They are of the spirit of truth. And the reality is the spirit of God within thrives on the spirit of truth. And so if you're wondering why it is we come week after week to delight in and rehearse and glory in the gospel, it's because when you hear Jesus is my only hope, if you really got it on the inside, then that fires you up. There's nothing you prefer to hear more than the pure, unadulterated gospel. Jesus and Jesus alone is my hope. Meanwhile, the world is thriving on theological error. And the word error there means deception, fraud, or twistedness. The people out there giving audience to the world are hearing exactly what they want to hear. John tells us in verse 5 that they, the world listens to them. He gives them audience. Why? Because here's what they're saying. The spirit of error is either saying you can be good enough on your own or you don't have to be worry, worried about being good at all because God's just not that righteous. He doesn't have that standard. In either case, the world ultimately denies the need for Jesus Christ the righteous as the substitute for me and my only hope. So we, North Roanoke Baptist Church, are going to be a people who don't believe every spirit. We are going to be a people who administers the test of every spirit. 
And we're going to be a people who does not grow weary because sometimes people go out from us and they depart from the faith. Rather, we will again and again and again until Christ comes or he calls us home. We will be a people who rejoice in and delight in and declare and celebrate the pure gospel. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises of God has come in the flesh and he's coming again for me. Would you bow with me? Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, writes these words, and I think they're a fitting benediction for us today. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity, Amen. This morning, you have an opportunity to do business with the Lord. Some of you are here and you're visiting for the first time. We're so glad you're here. We have a welcome bag for you as you exit. Please be sure an usher gives you a welcome bag. Some of you, you've been coming week after week and you're like, what is this new guy all about? I'm about Jesus Christ who came in the flesh and died for me. And he died for you. And he made us a people to proclaim his great name until he comes. And if you want to be a part of a people that is simply satisfied with just that, Jesus, we invite you to come and join us in taking the good news of the glory of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Some of you this morning... You've been teetering on the spirit of error and the spirit of truth. Every time that you hear that Jesus paid your price, the same thing happens in your heart that used to happen in mine, but I want to be good enough on my own. I want to do it Daniel's way. And you've been on the fence for months. And you know that it's the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you right now of the sin of self-sufficiency and you want to run to Christ and belong to a people who are just silly enough to say, if I didn't have Jesus, I wouldn't have anything. I want to give my life to Christ. If that's your plea this morning, we invite you to come and we welcome you into the family of God whose profession and claim is simply this, I need Christ. Not just once, every day. So as we sing, we invite you to come.